an Embraer EMB-120 crashes in Brunswick, Georgia, with a NASA astronaut and a former U.S. senator on board. Why did the small commuter flight lose control just miles away from the airport? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And it's time for episode five. We almost lost track already of what episode it is. <laughs> we were counting. We were like, what episode are we on? Oh, that's right. We're on episode five. So today we're talking about ASQ 2311. Which, which is, is short for Atlantic Southeast Airlines 2311. It's the ICAO code, ASQ. We've been using the IATA code, which is usually two digits. But in this case, it more, made more sense to use the three-digit ASQ. Because the two digits... EV. Which didn't make a whole lot of sense. So, it's actually funny because they're also known as ASA nowadays and on their tickets. But anyways, ASQ 2311. Where are they based? Where do they fly? They are from Georgia. And this flight was in Georgia. Georgia the state or Georgia the country? Georgia the state. Oh, okay. Because I've never heard of them <laughs> Should have <before>. clarified. <laughs> they're a commuter airline based in Atlanta. Okay. that. Thank you. Because I was like... Wait, Georgia, the country of Georgia, or nope. Georgia, the state the of Georgia? The state of Georgia. Cool. Good point. ASQ-2311 was a flight on April 5th, 1991. It was on an Embraer EMB-120RT, which is a twin turboprop short-haul commuter. The flight was scheduled from Atlanta-Hartsfield-Jackson International to the Glencope Jet Port in Brunswick. Fun fact, the Embraer is the biggest thing that flew to Brunswick at the time, and it was a jet prop, but it wasn't a jet, so calling it a jet port seemed strange to me. The captain for this flight was Mark Friedlein. He was 34 years old. He had 11,724 hours at the time of the incident, uh, of which 5,720 hours were in the Embraer 120. He was trained by the manufacturer, which I found was interesting. Uh, when the type was going through certification by the FAA, he was trained alongside the FAA's project pilot. So he was one of the first pilots in the United States certified on the Embraer 120 because he did it with the manufacturer. That's cool. Yeah. And the uh, the Czech pilot that certified him said that he was a an extremely good pilot and had uh, was very good with aircraft systems and very good... Uh, understanding of the aircraft in general. He also had an AMP cert. He was a mechanic, an aircraft mechanic as well. That's handy. Yeah. I kind of want to do that. He was a pretty well-rounded pilot. Yeah, having an AMP would be a good good thing to have. My dad is an AMP. I'll just stay in school forever. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, if you stay in school, then you're always, like, in your comfort zone. Educated. Educated. Yeah. Yeah, but then I'm also never making money. I mean, True. you can, but not much. Yeah. No. Anyway. Yeah. Anywho. The first officer was Hank Johnston. He was 36 year old. And he had 3,925 hours total at the time of the incident, of which 2,795 were on the Embraer 120. The flight was originally scheduled on aircraft November 228 Alpha Sierra. But... 
the aircraft had a mechanical issue, which caused a plane change to November 270 Alpha Sierra at about 1.07 p.m. Eastern Time. Is it common for airlines to put tail numbers on their planes that match their airline? Because I know Frontier does that. A lot of airlines do. Some, I mean, all the airlines have a way of doing their tail numbers. Southwest has one of the strangest ones these days because their their ending letters are usually not anything related to Southwest. They change, they vary a lot. But United's generally are UA. If it was a Continental plane, though, there's no letters at all at the end. It just has four or five numbers. Delta usually uses DL, DA, something along those lines. It depends on plane type, but they vary a little bit. Um, American generally has like AM or something related. But it really varies. Some airlines do it, some don't. Some don't really care what they get. In this case, Atlantic Southeast used the same form of tail number for all their airplanes. It was the fourth flight of the day for this plane, and no issues had been reported by any other pilots prior to this flight. The flight was originally scheduled for 1.24 p.m. Eastern Time, but because of the maintenance issues, it didn't depart until 1.47. After deviating around weather on the way to Brunswick, it didn't arrive into the Brunswick area until around 2.44 p.m. And that's what literally what the report says is the Brunswick area, which is interesting. It doesn't say if that's the airspace. It doesn't see if that's just around the city, but it arrived in the Brunswick area around 2.44 p.m. At 2.48 p.m. and 10 seconds, the flight crew acknowledged to ATC that the airport was in sight. ATC then cleared them for a visual approach, so they opted not to use any instruments for landing. They opted to just do it using visual. The flight crew acknowledged this at 2.48 and 21 seconds, and that was the last ATC call that the flight made. Before we continue, was this a passenger flight or was this a cargo flight? It was a passenger flight. There were 20 passengers on board. Okay, that was bugging me. Thank you. Sorry, should have clarified that earlier. Witnesses reported seeing the airplane at a lower altitude than normal. I found that interesting that the report from this point on only talks about witness statements and nothing factual about the airplane. Several of the witnesses reported that the airplane was 100 to 200 feet over their head, where it would normally be much higher. Then some of them also reported that the wings suddenly rolled left the airplane until the wings were perpendicular to the ground. The airplane then descended in a nose-down position and disappeared from sight behind trees, and this happened very, very, very quickly. Some witnesses reported loud engine noises like a whine or a squeal, like the engine was accelerating, and then it stopped before impact. An airline transport pilot, or ATP, observed from two to three miles away while he was driving the flight and believed that the approach was normal until it tilted left and suddenly nosed down. He did not see any smoke before the crash, and he believed that both the props were rotating at the time of the incident. The accident occurred around 2.51 p.m., a little less than two miles short of the runway. The airplane ended up in a field after it clipped trees, and the impact was very heavy. It killed everybody on board, which included three crew and 20 passengers. One of the passengers was a NASA astronaut, Sony Carter, who had circled the planet many times. He was an engineer, a medical doctor, and a Navy pilot. There was also a former senator on board, John Tower. He was a Republican of four terms, an advisor under Reagan and George H.W. Bush. The plane was destroyed completely on impact, 
It was valued at $7.8 million at the time, because it was still pretty new. And here's an interesting thing. It was not equipped with a CVR or an FDR. Was this a time... So remind me when this took place. This was in 1991. So for those of you out there who don't know, CVR is Cockpit Voice Recorder and FDR is Flight Data Recorder. So right. They're the two black boxes. Is this before smaller planes were mandated to have at least an FDR? Correct. By six months. By six months? Yep. Yep. Was this crash one of those things that led to that? It was a justification for it, but it actually wasn't the catalyst incident. But yeah, it did not require it. For a certain number of passengers less, and this airplane qualified, so they the airline did, elected not to have cockpit voice recorders or flight data recorders on board. Well, that would have been helpful. Yeah, it would have been really helpful after this incident. That's why most of what the report had to go on was witness testimonies. Well, that's unfortunate. Yep. In the area where the aircraft crashed, some trees and other vegetation were destroyed by the crash and the post-crash fire, needless to say. The NTSB actually ended up using the vegetation to help determine what had happened. Based on the angle that the plane had cut the trees, they were able to determine that it was in a roll such that the wings were completely vertical. They were not horizontal in any sense. So they were 90 degrees wing down. They were banked 90 degrees. And because of the size of the wreckage, they knew that the plane did not break up in flight all of the wreckage was right there at the site. Right. They also knew that both engines were running because there was vegetation in the engines. So none, neither engine went out during the flight. In the investigation, they also looked at weather conditions, which were found to be perfect at the time of the flight, basically. There's no, no adverse weather. All the navigation systems on board the airplane were in good working condition. Communication systems on board the airplane were in perfect working order. And airport conditions were good. Then why did they crash? Getting into that. The plane crashed about 250 feet from where it first struck trees, which is pretty close, so it was pretty vertical. It came to rest upright. All the flight controls showed no issue or evidence of failure from before the accident, after what they examined post-crash. The power levers were both found above flight idle, so they were increased power. Both engines and props showed no indication of a pre-impact failure, no evidence of in-flight fire, and the crash was determined to be non-survivable due to the high impact forces. Everyone died of blunt force trauma. Yep. All systems in the cockpit were in good working order, including all the instruments. So you said that the engines were at full power? They were not at full power, but they were increased power. So... Isn't that more than what you need to land with? Yes, but they weren't at the point of touchdown. They would have still had a little bit of power in in order to maintain speed on approach. So they couldn't have done that to try to get out of the bank? There was pretty much no time for them to do anything with their their controls at all. Oh, okay. I was just wondering because they were so close to the airport. Right. They fell from about 200 feet high and... While they don't talk about times of how long it took from the point that the airplane suddenly rolled left and nose down, I mean, it must have been a matter of seconds. It was maybe, they had maybe five, ten seconds worth of time to react from left wing over to the point of impact. 
and the aircraft had a constant speed, or variable pitch composite prop driven hydraulically. This is very important. There's a difference between constant speed and fixed pitch prop. So on a lot of smaller airplanes, a fixed pitch prop generally is a single piece. So even if it's two blades, it's all one big piece. And you can buy them or configure them in a certain pitch, and that pitch can increase climb or cruise performance. So generally you want to cut more air and produce more torque to climb, but for cruise you want that engine, you want that pitch to be a little bit lower for smooth but good performance. Yeah, it's fuel, more fuel efficient. More fuel efficient, exactly. At cruise altitude. Right. But right. especially here, like, in the mile-high city, where it's really hard to climb to altitude, you want to have the climb configuration. Right. When they examined this airplane with a constant speed prop, constant speed means that the pitch varies in order to maintain a certain RPM on the engine. So the actual blades of the propeller are moving. Right. The actual blades of the propeller change pitch in flight in order to cut more air, produce more climb or cruise. And this varies in order to maintain their efficiency while also increasing speed on climb and reducing speed on descent. This is super helpful on an airplane, especially a turboprop, where the propellers generally spin a lot faster than in a piston-driven airplane. Uh, it also needs to produce a lot of torque to do so. When they examined this airplane in particular, the right propeller was found at an angle of 22.6 degrees, on impact, and while the left was found at three degrees, three degrees yet would be almost flat, so it basically created a wall. It would not allow the air to go through it. Is that how they would slow down upon landing? Nope. It's not normal. They would decrease um, to a lower pitch. They found in the cockpit that it was decreased to what should have been around 24 degrees, so the right engine being at 22 is pretty consistent with what they had set in the cockpit, and that does increase drag. However, three degrees is extremely drastic. And, and it's basically pushing air back, so it's just drag. It creates an extreme force on the left side. The opposite of that would be at 90 degrees, where it's completely flat, but then there's a lot of drag to actually spin the prop, and that's called a feathered position, which we will get into later. Yeah, I remember... Something about props turning when they weren't supposed to. Now I remember what you were talking about, where you're like, do you remember this episode? And I didn't at first, and now I'm like, okay, I remember there was something with the prop, like the blades on the props, but I can't remember exactly what happens. And it wasn't necessarily that it turned when it wasn't supposed to, but it went beyond its limits. During flight, it never should have gotten to three degrees. All right. So to get into how exactly this happened, I'm going to have to explain a little bit more about how the propeller works. So in the cockpit, they have a propeller control lever that they move back and forth depending on what they want the pitch to be. That in turn moves the propeller control unit or PCU ball screw, which we have an image up on our blog um, where you can see the entire layout of the propeller. It is built by Hamilton Standard. And you can see towards the right side there is a ball screw. That is what is moved. And then it in turn moves a whole mechanism with a oil transfer tube, which is 
threaded, fluted, however you want to go with that, which then catches a quill all in short. It moves the oil from the engine. It's the same oil used to lubricate the engine, actually. Um, and that hydraulically changes the blade angle. If a speed change does not occur as is ordered, quote-unquote, by the lever, the ball screw will continue to move until it reaches its limit of travel. Because the left PCU ball screw was found in a position corresponding to a feathered angle, it was at like 79 degrees or something, mm -hmm. and the left propeller actuator was at a low blade angle, it is apparent that a condition existed in which the ball screw was moving in a direction to slow the propeller speed by increasing the blade angle, but it didn't respond. So the most likely reason for failure to change the actual blade angle was the failure of the PCU to position the servo valve because of the quill spline. Now, why would it fail, you say? They looked at it, and actually they found the quill, which is normally toothed, we have a couple images on our blog. We have an image of a normal quill, which is at the top, and then two images below it, which are how worn the quill was on each engine. The teeth weren't catching on the transfer tube, so nothing was actuating the blade as it was supposed to. I think the one on the left is from the left engine. We have to assume because it was so worn. And they mentioned that it was worn more evenly. But you can see on the right one that some of the teeth are still apparent. So basically it couldn't lock on, to, on the gear to control the blade. So the blade slipped to the natural state of flat. Because as I mentioned earlier, when the blade is at a flat angle, there's no drag on the engine actually spinning the prop. Right. So it was more natural for it to be in that state, which sucked. Now, what could have possibly worn the quill to look like this? Earlier on... Hamilton Standard had decided to change the coating on the transfer tube. Originally, it was a nitrided coating, but they changed it to a titanium nitrided coating. And during their test, everything was fine, nothing was wrong, but it was a more abrasive coating. And they actually found that on planes being used at the time, the coating was more abrasive than in the certification testing. So that's what wore away at the quill teeth. They did determine that there was enough contact on the teeth left to pass the feather-unfeather test that the pilots run before their flight, but the additional wear during the flight is ultimately what caused failure. So essentially, this quill helps to regulate and control the pitch angle. It's part of the mechanism that moves the tube, the transfer tube, to adjust pitch angle. But when it got too worn because they decided to switch to a titanium nitride, which means it has titanium literally in it, uh, that coating was super abrasive and basically turned it into... It turned it into like a nail file. A nail file, and it filed away the teeth on this way faster than they had anticipated. And that meant that basically the tube was just free-floating, and so as soon as it had worn enough from their movements... It just went to its natural state... Of the blade angle. Blades just went flat from pure air pressure. So if this quill, and I can't remember if the quill's the thing that's made of the nitride. It is not. No, it it's... uses a coating of nitride. And it's not on the quill. It's on the transfer tube, which right. is what locks into the quill. But if the quill had the same material, would it have been worn that much then? Would have worn, but not this quickly. 
So, because they were made of two different substances, the transfer tube filed it down faster. Really, they shouldn't have switched coatings. It, they certified it with the titanium nitride coating, but it was smoother than the ones that were actually put in the planes. So, because they didn't do quality control. Correct. It caused it. So, back to the feathering thing. Of what I understand of the feathering of the propellers, if that has to happen on an engine, it shouldn't break down the engine, right? Like, to the point where it's not working correctly? Hamilton Standard was required to have a fail-safe should something like this happen. And instead of the propeller going flat, what should have happened is it should have feathered. Yes, that is more drag to move the propeller and it would have killed the engine, basically. The pilots wouldn't have been able to use the engine, but they can still fly with one engine. What they can't fly with is when one engine is pushing backward, which is what was happening on this flight because it, they went flat. So they didn't feather. The, propell the propellers did not feather. They went completely flat. Correct. Or unfeathered. The yes. fail-safe failed. So when they were certifying the engine, originally the manufacturer for the propeller, Hamilton... Uh, did not consider this to be a problem. They didn't consider the change in the nitride to be an issue because they also had the failsafe, and they deemed that it was not a concern because of the failsafe design. But by August of the same year of this incident, all of the titanium nitride transfer tubes were removed from service. So, question, why did they change it to... Why did they change it to begin with? It was something to do with ease of manufacturing, I it think. Was, yeah, it was more efficient in manufacturing. It was an easier nitride to applicate. To apply. Applicate. Yeah, but then wouldn't you want better, con better quality control? I mean, this would have happened anyway because it was still a, an abrasive substance, but why wouldn't you want the, all of the planes to have the smoother version of the... What was it, the quill? No, it was on the transfer tube. The transfer tube. So the report didn't really get into that. What we do know is that there was no requirement for any of those parts, the transfer tube, the quill, or the, the, what is it, the ball screw, to be inspected on a periodic basis. None. Because the manufacturer determined, as well as the FAA, that the forces and torque that were put on these parts were not high enough to be considered needing regular inspection. They didn't know that the nitride would cause it to wear. They only thought that regular wear from forces would be a problem. And before every flight, I had briefly mentioned that they do an unfeather and feather check. And at that point, I think it said like that induces seven times more torque than it would ever experience during flight. So they figured that test should cover all our bases. Right, generally. And yes, because normally in flight, it's going to be a very smooth movement, and it's going to be constant over time. It's not going to happen instantly like they do on the ground, a heavy feather test. Now, Hamilton Standard said that that's actually impossible, and they did a test in a tunnel to show that it would feather upon failure. Upon failure of the quill, the propellers would feather, everything would be fine. However... This test was performed in a chamber. It was not performed in the air. It was bolted to the ground. So it doesn't have the same loading, torques, vibrations, anything that a plane in the air would. 
The best way to test it, they went down to Brazil to the Embraer facility, and they decided to do a controlled test flight where the quill would fail in the air, and they would see what happened. So in these flight tests that were conducted, they actually used three separate quills. They used a standard new quill to make sure, just as basically as a reference while flying, what should it do in flight. Then they used a normal wear quill and just see what that would do. And then they used a machined one that was simulated worn. So when they tested the normal one, of course, they got they got proper response out of the prop. Everything reacted properly. The normal wear one, uh, everything reacted pretty close to properly. And then when they used the worn one, they had put a stop in the transfer tube to make sure that it wouldn't go past 22 degrees as it was. So as they decreased the uh, propeller pitch down to about 37, 38 degrees, it would go down, and they did notice that it would go all the way down to 22 degrees. And at that point, the pilots did start to note that it became difficult to control the airplane to some extent. It began to roll left, it began to yaw left, and they began to hear what is called a beat frequency, which Miranda knows what that is. I do know what a beat frequency is. So when you have two sound waves that are the exact same amplitude as two engines would be, but the frequency changes ever so slightly, if you take the two frequencies and subtract them, you will hear an underlying frequency of that. So say one prop was going 500 hertz and the other was at 501 right? And they were the same volume. You would hear a frequency of one hertz, which is once a second. Well, and that that might be too little of a difference to hear, but if you've ever been in a band or been like your son or daughter has been in a, like a middle school band or something, if two instruments are playing the same note, but they're out of tune, but they're out of tune, you'll hear a wah, 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 wah. That's what a beat frequency is. And that's what they began to hear, because as the propellers went towards 22 degrees, the frequency of the left engine was deep, was different than the frequency of the right engine. So the pilots in the accident would have heard a difference first before they lost control. So it's not known what would have happened if it had gone beyond the 22 degrees for sure, but they didn't feel it safe to go past that point. It's pretty safe to assume it would have just gone flat. Yep. So... Basically, what this proved is that even though they did it in a test facility, it didn't matter. Because, because it's a different it, condition. Yeah. Right. Flying an actual aircraft is different than being in a chamber. So then they opted to do some flight sim tests. And these flight sim tests, they bypassed the normal conditions of the propeller stopping within a certain range and managed to do a three-degree pitch on an engine in the simulator and in every single test when it got below about 17 degrees the airplane crashed short of the runway it lost complete control there was nothing to be done so the airplane wasn't controllable no matter who had control of the airplane a fun bit prior to this a service bulletin had been put out it was posted in january of the same year to replace the quills as they were found extremely worn on several other airplanes, but it was not mandatory until the next inspection. 
So on the next major inspection, they should have replaced him. Now, mind you, this is only April. The previous inspection was a year before or something like that. It was it was further before this, but it was only in January that the service bulletin was put out. And between the service bulletin and the time of the investigation, four airplanes were found with extremely worn quills and were replaced. They took some of those quills and they actually put them into engines in similar chamber again and tested them, and sure enough, they had absolutely no control over the prop. A little side note, the NTSB believed that the pilots actually only received five to six hours of sleep prior to the flight. The airline was utilizing a... They were using a regulation that allowed them to reduce rest time between flights during layovers um, should something happen where they were forced to do a layover. But they that was the intention of the regulation, but that's not how it was being used. The NTSB determined this was not a factor of this flight. The pilots couldn't have done anything. But they were concerned that Atlantic Southeast Airlines, as well as other commuter air carriers, scheduled these reduced periods of rest for about 60% of layovers. They believed that the FAA should change it. It wasn't an official recommendation from this incident. Yeah, but that's kind of important. You don't want pilots to be tired because that impairs your judgment. And if it impairs your judgment, it's more likely you're going to get into an accident. Mm -hmm. But everybody that encountered this flight crew prior to this flight throughout the day said they were in, in good spirits and were in good condition. So it wasn't really considered to be a factor in this incident at all. I mean, especially since... This incident happened so fast, basically nobody could control this. It really wasn't wasn't a, a problem of theirs. So the NTSB determined that the probable cause was the loss of control in flight as a result of a malfunction of the left engine propeller control unit, which allowed the propeller blade angles to go below the flight idle position. Contributing to the accident was the deficient design of the propeller control unit by Hamilton Standard, and the approval of the design by the FAA. The design did not correctly evaluate the failure mode that occurred during this flight, which resulted in an uncommanded and uncorrectable movement of the blades of the airplane's left propeller below the flight idle position. So in this probable cause, basically they're blaming the propeller manufacturer as well as the FAA, in a way. However... The one thing is, like, neither one of them could foresee this actually happening. So while it puts blame on them, I don't really think it's necessarily their fault. It was an unforeseen I disagree. I would say that it was Hamilton Standard's poor quality control. If if they had done certification testing such that the coding was the same on all of their parts, they would have known during certification testing that it causes wear and tear. Well, and that's fair, but... I would say it's it's more that they didn't do enough testing to determine a wear over time amount. So it, it it's further, it's like maybe the the wear that they determined on those parts at one point wasn't much, but they didn't do enough testing, but long they, enough to determine that it but was... But they used a different smoothness during the certification testing. Right. It wasn't what actually went into the planes. Right. So that's also a factor. The findings in the report from this incident... There were 17 of them, but I will just touch on a few here. Uh, Flight crew activities in the previous three days leading up to the incident did not affect the flight performance on this flight. However, the reduced rest periods were being abused. The left propeller was found at 3 degrees, which is below conditions of normal flight. 
The left propeller did not respond to inputs of propeller control levers because of the worn quail. The titanium nitride was selected for the manufacturing efficiency instead of originally certified nitride transfer tubes. The manufacturer did not consider wear of the failed components to be an issue during initial testing because of low torque load on those components and could not determine that the titanium nitride would be an issue later. The quick wear of the quill was determined to be because of the harder titanium nitride. The left propeller blades moved to a low angle position because of the centrifugal and aerodynamic forces put on them. The airplane became uncontrollable because of asymmetrical lift and drag forces, which went beyond the limits of the airplane's lateral control authority. So when the left engine went unfeathered, it was that force that that created aerodynamically put the left wing down, and there's no amount of input they could put in the control to counteract that. It was too, too heavy of a force. When testing the titanium nitride for certification, the controls used were actuated smoothly and the wear was not properly represented. The transfer tube quill and ball screws were not required to be periodically inspected when certified. And reduced rest periods were used in contrary to the purpose of the regulation. So all the stuff we touched on, but that's the general findings literally just printed at the bottom of the report. The recommendations that came from this report, there were not very many actually, but the ones that were there were pretty key. They recommended that they conduct certification of the propeller and require modifications to ensure it prevents excessive wears, again, and put a regulation on this. They also recommended to establish periodic inspection requirements for the transfer tube splines, servo ball screw, and the quills. They recommended to update requirements to restrict reduced rest periods to unexpected operational delays only. So in other words, they did say in there, they recommend that regulations be changed to not get rid of reduced rest periods, but to make it more clear that therefore, say a pilot calls in, you need to call somebody who has enough hours still needed for the rest of the month and say, hey, we need you to pick up a flight but they might not have enough rest period. As long as that's within the reduced rest, they could still do it. However, they should not be scheduling reduced rest time intentionally. That makes sense. And they recommended to the airline to discontinue scheduling reduced rest periods altogether, as well as to the commuter group, basically. They recommended to the the regional commuter... Airlines. Airlines. All regional commuter airlines to reduce their use of reduced rest so some things came of this, and I think they've further changed since then, the reduced rest thing. Um, they also added in a a second quill, didn't they? Yeah, we read that somewhere that they added a second quill as a backup, though I don't... I don't know. If it's doing enough damage on the first quill, that's kind of where my head was at, but I didn't see any diagrams to see, like, maybe... If the first quill got added, like, it clamped down on the second quill or something like that. Maybe. That would be the only thing that I think would make sense. Because if you have two quills in the same place using the same thing... It would just get worn equally. Yeah. So then, what's the point of having the second quill? Right. Now, I I can't speak much to it since I only saw a brief mention of it and no diagrams, but... Right. But they were recommended to recertify the propeller altogether to make sure that this does not happen by making sure that nitride was properly tested and certified for wear. And then, of course, biggest thing being that they recommended having a periodic inspection for all of these parts put in place. 
That way it was known if they were wearing. If any of you know about the second quill thing, let us know, please. Yeah, on the website, there's a portion on the blog post where you can comment. Please leave us a comment or email us at info at hardlandingspodcast.com. We want to know. Because this wasn't made very clear anywhere. Yeah, so if you can find a diagram or an article or something yes, to help us figure out how that would make it better, that would be great. Try to back up your sources like we do. Speaking of sources, everything's on our website, www.hardlandingspodcast.com. Thank you to all of you who've been listening. Thank you to all of you who've been following our Facebook page, sharing our stuff. And we want to give a special thank you shout out to Robert Thompson, who requested that we cover this flight. Yeah, that was pretty neat. It was our first recommendation, so we thought we would do it anyways. It's a good one. And it was a mechanical failure, which makes me a little more involved. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, thank you to everybody that's been helping us through all this, giving us good feedback in person or online and people that have been engaged with this. And it's been... It's definitely been good to see the receiving end of this from people all around the world. It's kind of neat to see how it's spread. We definitely have a lot more listens than we kind of thought we would at this point. And we have listeners all over the world. Like, we have, I think, one listener in Sweden and two in Algeria, some in Germany, Ireland. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So thank you so much, you guys. Yeah, thanks so much. But be it that we're recording this, like two weeks ahead of time we don't know where this will even be by then yeah so this episode is airing november 19th i think yeah and today's the third by then i don't know we could be even i mean we will be further along the only place we can go is up and we appreciate that that you guys are helping us do that we're enjoying this thoroughly and fueling our nerdism that's right because we're giant nerds by the way i did watch half a season of air disasters <laughs> on wednesday because i had a snow day <laughs> and i was bored so i just sat there and watched like six episodes i know it's hard for you to not but sometimes we need you to not <laughs> <laughs> i know it's gonna be too hard to keep you from doing that probably and the reality is if you're only watching most episodes once you probably won't remember most of the ones that we're gonna talk about anyway this was an episode and i didn't remember it until you started talking about the feathering of the propeller and stuff mm-hmm. and i was like oh yeah i remember there was something with the propeller but i couldn't remember exactly what happened like i don't remember all the science behind it right so you just have to wait till it's like six months later <laughs> Since I've watched it, and then it's like, oh yeah, I don't remember it, so. We'll try. Also, just for our listeners' information, um, we will be releasing a new podcast soon covering our travels. For example, yesterday we just got back from Minnesota, traveled around the Mall of America a little bit. Miranda and I are currently sipping wine from Crayola Sippy Cups, because we're children. (laughs) (laughs) Crayola Sippy Cups acquired at the Crayola store at the Mall of America. Yeah, um, we went and... Wandered around Minneapolis a little bit, and yeah, we, I think we were on the ground for 13 hours. Yeah, uh, something like that. I was like, I think it was more like 12, not quite 12 hours, actually. In any case, we're going to be doing a podcast covering some of our adventures, um, the three of us, plus maybe some of our friends, Yeah. so. And we do a lot of adventures. I had a family member ask me about that today. They're like, where have you gone? I'm like, at least 10 different states, if not more, oh, in the past more. couple of years. 
we love doing small day trips. So um, if you want to learn more about some states and maybe some places to go visit and... And how to do trips super cheap. Yeah, we will discuss that more. And then also uh, our friend Brendan will probably be joining us on that. He'll be... He and Nick will be the main hosts. We've all we've already pseudo started recording a little bit. We we did like a test episode that might actually end up just being an episode because it went pretty well, I thought. And he he travels as much as we do, sometimes with us, sometimes on his own, uh, a lot of times on his own lately. But but it's interesting for me, like him and I geek out a lot over the aviation side and traveling, and and so y- you can hear me in a lot more enthusiastic voice, probably even than here. Here I try to keep it low key because this is talking about a pretty serious thing. But when him and I are just talking about our trips, travels, adventures, and such, uh, it gets maybe a little more enthusiastic. But but I think it's a lot of fun. Um, so we'll keep you guys updated. We don't even have a name for it yet. So. Or a post date. So we'll we keep you in the know. let you know when that's going to happen. So that was ASQ2311. And thank you for listening. Keep, keep your, your airspeed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.